0: Um, if you were here last week and you have come back here uh, expecting to be given money again, um, I have a word for, for you that you should, um, you should do the work for money that will never die, um, for, for wealth that endures to eternal life. This is what Jesus said when they came looking for their stomachs to be filled a second time. If you missed last week, you missed out. We passed the offering bag twice. And the second time, you actually took money out of the offering bag. So unique things happen. You never know what's going to happen here. If you're ever at a party and things are a little bit dull and the salsa isn't spicy enough and you want to sort of liven things up, um, here is a word that you could throw out. You could throw out the word privilege and just see how the animated conversation would begin to happen. This has become a hotly debated idea in the last five years or so. It has just suddenly skyrocketed in use. Is privilege something that we attain or are we born with it? Am I to feel bad if I have it? Am I to feel mad at those who do? What is it? And if I have it, what am I supposed to do with it? Sounds like a virus, huh? Do I have it? Do I have privilege? So there's lots of preachers on this topic, and they don't stand on a Sunday morning behind a pulpit like this with Bible open, but there's lots of people who are preaching about these topics. They're loud and passionate. They're very certain of their views. And if you look at privilege and hear conversations about privilege, people are all over the place on this. The Olympics are coming up, and it reminds me of like a a drunk hammer thrower in the Olympics of where the ideas go. They are just here, there and everywhere when it comes to privilege. So why is that? Here's why. It's because of this. We are all born with a very clear sense of right and wrong. Every one of us has a very clear sense of right and wrong when we are born. We know about topics like justice and equality and fairness. You don't even need siblings to to gain this sense of this, but if you have siblings, go back to your childhood and think about things like justice and equality and fairness. We're highly in tune with this. But here's the thing. Not only are we born with a clear sense of right and wrong, we are born broken. That's the idea of original sin. So because we're born broken, it means that our right and wrong radar is sort of foggy at best. We have a clear sense of right and wrong, but, but it can be clouded by all kinds of different things. Isn't it true that we tend to hold others to a standard that we don't keep? The Bible speaks to that in Romans. We tend to cloud our judgment of justice with other factors like friendship or favors. If those things are in place, suddenly our sense of justice might not be quite as noble as we would proclaim that it is. Think about this picture that justice is blind. The reason that has meaning to us is we all understand that in judging, we should be blindfolded to judge right and wrong. But we're not. We tend to let other factors get in the way of that. So because of this, this whole idea of privilege uh, just carries with it uh, really interesting competing ideas. God has gifted the church in this way. Listen, I know I have you in James. Just look at the screen for a second. is from Ephesians. God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for work of ministry. Oh my, that's in the wrong order. Let's go here. Nope, I didn't have it. Okay, keep listening. To equip the uh, for saints for, for work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith, and of the knowledge of Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Hear me really clearly before you look at what I'm about to say. God gifted the church with all these different things so that we'd grow up. That's what that's saying. And then listen to this. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning By craftiness in deceitful schemes. I'm bringing this up because of this. Preaching has gotten louder. We have turned up the volume on who proclaims their solid ideas of right and wrong with certainty. Preachers are everywhere now. It was not that long ago where there was much more of a can't-we-all-just-get-along-tolerance idea of like, that's good for you, that's not good for me. Now we have very, very active evangelists on all sides of almost every issue. False teaching and ideas that come across are not just innocent mistakes that have us sort of like wrong in some areas. There's evil forces behind the schemes and human cunning of people that are leading us to our doom. stands to reason that if safety is this way, and I'm being actively led this way and dissuaded from going this way, it's not just a mistake, it's death, it's life or death at stake here. So in Christ, you are in fact a privileged person. Let's go back to this idea of privilege for one second. Being in Christ means that you have power and advantage in this life and for all of eternity. In fact, listen to 1 Peter 2. It says that in Christ, listen to this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In Christ, you have a future wedding feast like no other future wedding feast. We have a groom who is preparing the way. And we are, as the church collectively, capital C Church, we are the bride of Christ. We're the bride-in-waiting. And as this privileged people, this chosen race, royal priesthood, as the bride-in-waiting, what are we to do with privilege? and power. This passage in 1 Peter goes on to say this, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This sort of fairy tale picture um, is, is, is deep in our stories. It's deep in our movies. It resonates with us. We cry at the end. We cheer at the end. We're like, yes, it's so good. If only it were real. The good news of the gospel is it's real. The good news of the gospel is we are living that, and that's a certain future that's coming. So our great privilege, be witnesses to the glories of Jesus. Live the story right now. Today's passage, it's, it's like we're on holy ground. We are, if, if you look at anyone with a physical Bible who really loves the Lord, I bet you anything Philippians 2 would be dog-eared and worn and weathered and highlighted. And you could just tell someone, someone looked at this passage a lot. This passage is like holy ground. It's a, it's a part of the Bible that I, I, I pray you will come back to over and over again. What I want to do is I just want to read it in its entirety. Oh, did I have it, you and James? We'll get to James. Sorry go to Philippians 2. <laughs> Philippians 2 is, is, is where we'll be. We'll, we'll get to James in a second. Remember last week that Paul showed us two sides of the same gift. The gift of the gospel is that we would believe in him, but it's also been gifted that we would suffer for him. And that suffering lasts for a short time. And then he says this, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, of God the Father. Do you pray with me? God, thank you for communicating with us for turning on the light about who you are and how we fit into your plan. God, you don't leave us groping in the dark guessing at what you're like and how we fit We trust this morning that as we listen with submitted hearts and sharp minds, God, that you will speak directly to our inner being right now in this holy moment. Amen. Anyone been to the boardwalk lately? Rainy day boardwalk trip? All right. Uh, There's a ride there called the Fireball. Anyone been on the Fireball before? Raise your hand. All right few adventurous souls have been on the fireball. Fireball, you get strapped in, you kind of nervously look about, and you're in a circle. You're like this, and so you're kind of eyeing people, and you're like, is anyone here a weak stomach baby? And if so, are they in the you know, realm and angle that I am going to get spewed on or have the spray of spew on me as we're up and flying about? That's what's happening. It lifts you off the ground. It's bends you at dizzying speeds and sort of nauseating angles. Right at the point where you feel like you can't take it anymore, you hear this, and it like ratchets up even more. And on the ride, if you're watching this, I watch now more than I ride, if you're watching it, you hear audible groans and squeals. Some are like, yeah, like next level. And other people are absolutely moaning. Everything in you, as you're up there, by the way, is hoping that the engineers and the people who maintained this ride did their job really, really well. Please, Lord, let the steel and the bolts hold, because we are just flying all over the place. After a time, you're back on earth, you're exhilarated, you're disoriented, you're entertained... And as you stumble to sort of like find your flip-flops and make your way to the exit, and then you come around the corner and you come out, you realize something, and that is this. For all of the energy, all the excitement, all the entertainment, all of the motion, you haven't gone anywhere. You're just at the boardwalk. Like you're back at the exact same place that you have been. This is a picture of the human condition. The human condition is this. There are carnival clowns who keep peddling progress. And there's tons of motion, tons of energy, tons of excitement, and people are buying season passes, paying good money and waiting in line to do this over and over and over again. Exhibit A. The presidential election season is coming upon us. Woohoo! Who's excited for that? <laughs> there's kind of like moans because why? We know the routine. Fireball. It's all fireball. Woo-hoo. Promises, things, campaigns, millions of dollars. Slinging accusations, spewing vomit, all this stuff. Where will we be at the end? We'll be back at the boardwalk. Kind of right where we were again. This happens over and over and over in all kinds of different ways. The reason we follow every wind of doctrine is we are trying to make sense of a war that is going on within us. Now, turn to the book of James, I promise. We have these two opposing things going on in us. And James gives us a really, really clear picture, James chapter 4, of what's happening. It's this dissonance. Instead of like being in sync, we're a little bit off. If you're learning to drive stick, it's it's the grinding of the gears. We're not quite there. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you. Let me say it again. Your passions are at war within you. That's what's causing all of the conflict and quarreling. Verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It's this. You want a great marriage but you want to keep acting like you're single. That will never, ever line up. You will never, ever get that. You want this, and you want this, and you can't have it. Right now, try to look at the cross and try to look at this wall at the same time. None of you can do it. You have to point one way or the other. We're at war within ourselves. We want things that aren't compatible. James goes on to say this in verse 4. You adulterous people, there's the, the, there's the adultery metaphor, right? We want a good marriage with Christ, but we want to keep being signaled, sort of dating others on the side. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is an enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So, passages like this actually shine light on, on our incredible passage that we're going to look at. This, Philippians 2 1 through 11, is really, really powerful. It sort of takes us way up high into the stratosphere and shows us the entire plan of God. Shows Jesus with God before the beginning, the incarnation, Merry Christmas, the resurrection, Happy Easter, and then the end of time when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Do you see it? It's the whole thing. You stood before creation. we just sang this sort of like sweeping scope. And yet, the passage takes us down to how we handle lunch this afternoon after church. It takes us down to very, very practical things of doing nothing out of conceit or selfish ambition, but to just simply regard one another's needs as more important than my own. So it's just an an incredible passage because of that. Here's how I want to structure this morning. I want to answer how the cross of Christ solves the problem going on, this war within us. We want this, but we also want this. And the cross of Christ solves it. Some of you know my story. I'll tell it very, very quickly. But at age 17, I realized I very much believed in God. I never doubted God's existence. I always felt convicted for my sin. I witnessed before I was really in love and submitted with Jesus because I knew that was the right truth. And yet I wanted the best of both worlds. Whatever this world had to offer, And whatever in my mind I perceived the next world had to offer. I wanted to be married to Jesus and date the world. What does James 4 says? If you make yourself a friend of the world, you're an enemy of the cross of Christ. You're an enemy with Jesus. You can't have it, it'll never happen. My desire for that would never happen. So I was sitting on a fence. And to sit on a fence is not to be married to Jesus. And in an instant. Here's hope for you parents praying for you kids. Here's hope for you kids going, I feel that wrestle, but I don't, I don't know. I can't authentically go to Jesus yet. Here's hope. In an instant, three miles away at a church, I'm sitting in a service on a Sunday night, planning on being relatively bored. And God just went, Whew. opened my eyes, peeled back the blinders. I gave my life to Christ. I was baptized the following Sunday started reading the Bible every day for a year. That was my commitment. My life has never been the same. I was 17 years old. God just saved me. I was not a people, and then I was his people. I had not been shown mercy and received it. I then was shown mercy and lived in it in an instant. What happened was these competing ideas were solved at the cross. So in Christ, we're no longer spinning in circles. Jesus provides not only the path, but Jesus provides the power. That was one of the most remarkable things. I had heard all the time, Jesus gives you power to overcome temptation. I had never experienced it. I suddenly began to experience that. It was life-changing. It changed my life. It's all centered on the cross where the great sacrificial love of Christ is most clearly demonstrated. You don't have to write anything down this morning if you don't want to. I just wrote it down for you. Thought you would need a little break after ski week. But here's how I'm structuring it. In a blank world, the cross shows us something different. Okay, So we're going to give three of those from this text. Here's number one. In a proud world, the cross shows us that humble service is best. In a proud world, the cross shows us humble service is best. After reminding us of the blessings that we have in Christ, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or, or conceit. But in humility, there's that word, count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind among you, uh, among yourself, which is yours in Christ. There's a simple reason that all service done apart from Christ doesn't really last and it doesn't really satisfy. I tried that. I tried to do the right things and I couldn't. It didn't satisfy and it didn't last. Here's why. It's tainted by sin. Selfish ambition and conceit are two varieties of that. Some of your translations may say vain glory. Here's what's interesting about vain glory. People seeking applause for nothing. Like glory that isn't even really there. It's non-glory. It's, there's nothing there and we're trying to get applause for it. Man, when you start looking for this, you just see this everywhere. You see this in your own heart. You're like, I'm wanting praise for something that's not even there. It's Just vain glory. It's like the wind that sort of blows away. Now, we know that humility is a fruit of the Spirit, and it is a virtue, but here's the thing. When Paul wrote this, humility was a vice, not a virtue. That's sort of old language, but we know what a virtue is, something good, something to be aspired to, a character trait that you would want in a future spouse or a a boss or whatever. What's a vice? A vice is opposite of that. It's those traits in people that you go, oh, that's a bad habit. That's something that is going to weigh them down. That's something to, to avoid and work against. When Paul wrote this, no one thought this was a good idea. No one. Why? Because humility was considered a vice. Isn't that weird? A bad habit is if you were humble. That's the Roman Empire. That's a character flaw. Now, even if you aren't a Christian here today, even if you weren't raised in a Christian home, there's enough Christian influence that has seeped into our country that to this point we still see humility on the virtue side and not on the vice bad habit side. But in a proud and out loud world, we are moving ever towards Roman society. We're getting back in sync with the Romans where to be humble and silently serve someone is beginning to be seen as a vice, as a negative, as a weakness. We're sort of returning to Rome in our day and age. But Jesus emphatically shows us no, no, no. no. Humility is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, it's a result of God dwelling in you. And you want proof? He humbled himself and went to the cross silently, like a lamb before its shears, not making all the defenses that he could, he went in humility. The way of the first Adam and the way of the second Adam. This is biblical code. Some of you Bible scholars are like, got it, totally know what I mean. Here's, Here's what it is. The first Adam is our natural state. It's what we were born into. It's talking about Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. So the first Adam is behavior that comes naturally to us. We're born with it. No one trains us in it. It's just there. The first Adam is prideful. Pride comes natural to you. Looking out for your own needs instead of the needs or above the needs of others, that comes natural to you. My son and I were driving this morning. We're always the first ones here one of the things I told him, I said, part of why I keep coming back to this passage is I need it over and over and over and over again. God, keep reminding me of the second Adam way of life. What's the second Adam way of life? Well, Jesus is the second Adam. He comes and he lifts us out of our natural state to a supernatural state. So now we can live the way he would tell us to be lived, which is to die to our old self and be born again. This is what's pictured so beautifully in baptism. You die to the first Adam and you raise to newness of life in the second Adam. Let me show you this little chart. If you get into commentary reading, which, um, which is really helpful because they just can put things together, but there's this little chart. You can take a little screenshot of that or something, but this is just comparing Adam in the garden and Jesus on the cross. That Adam was made in the image of God. Jesus was and is the very essence of God. Adam wanted to be like God. Jesus took on the likeness of man. Adam wanted to exalt himself. Jesus emptied himself. Adam was discontent being God's servant. Jesus assumed the form of a slave. Adam arrogantly rejected God's word in sinful disobedience. Jesus humbly submitted to God's word in perfect obedience. Adam succumbed to temptation. Jesus overcame temptation and crushed the tempter. Adam brought the curse on the world. Jesus took the curse for the world. Adam was condemned and disgraced. Jesus was exalted by the Father. Do you know how this author, this commentator got this? He just meditated on Philippians 2, 1 to 11. And as you do those things, you're, you're filled with adoration, You're filled with hope. Just looking at this short list, we could go on and on, actually, but this short list shows us both what is ours in Christ. When we are in the second Adam, that's all ours in Christ. All these things on on the Jesus side of the list. But it also shows us the life that we were saved from. Left to ourselves, we are all stuck in the ways of the first Adam. So you want to know how to think about power and privilege? Look to Jesus Christ. Every one of you in this room has some kind of power and privilege. You want to know what to do with it? Like, what are you supposed to do with it? You look to Jesus Christ. Here's the second one. Proud and humble is not the only sort of conflicting message that's an impossibility. There's another one that is preached loud and clear in our day and age. Here it is. The way to read this is, in a get, get, get world to be happy, in a get, get, get to be happy world, the cross shows us a give, give, give joy. Get, get, get means, man, I'm just going to, I'm going to get and keep on getting. I'm going to get all that I can in this season because I don't know how long it'll last. So we have a world that says that's the path to happiness. Jesus said quite simply, it's better to give than to receive. You know who struggles to believe that? Everyone. Those who call themselves Christians, those who don't. We get snippets of it. We know this is true. We're like, why was that so rewarding? Why do I feel like I've received more than I gave when I came here to give? And we've all had that experience. Because Jesus doesn't lie to us. He was telling us about a deep kind of joy. Our series for this entire series is Oceans of Joy, and that's because Philippians is the joy letter. It's just this this epistle written to this church by a guy in prison who shouldn't be happy or joyful or cheerful or any of that, and yet it's just permeating with joy all through it. And this little tagline of the idea that uh, you can't help yourself is this. You can't help yourself when god gets inside of you and gets control of your life You actually can't help but begin to experience joy The deep kind of everlasting joy that will sustain you just akin to floating in the ocean And just having it just just be there supporting you But you can't help yourself also alludes to this idea in the first atom in your natural state of mustering up joy You will always go in the wrong direction You will seek it out in ways that are not there Selflessness is super easy to talk about. It's very easy to write about, to read about, to sing about, but it's impossible to really live it out on your own. To live a selfless life, to do what these few short verses in the Bible say do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, put in humility, put it on people's needs. You can't do that. You guys know this. Like, you've tried. And it's impossible. You cannot do this apart from Christ. And Christ begins to mold and transform you and change you. John 15, 5 says you abide in Jesus or else you can do nothing. What's your assignment? Abide in Jesus. That's it. Selflessness will be the result if you don't. Paul's own joy comes from others' growth and good. Look at verse 2. Complete my joy by... Pause for a second. How would you answer that? Right now, if you were asked, my joy would be complete when blank. How would you fill that in? I mean, it's just kind of an interesting question. I would be completely joyful if blank. For Pastor Paul, here's what it was. It was that his flock would grow up in Christ and grow together in Christ, that they'd strive together, that they'd walk together, that they'd have one mind, that they would would grow up in Christ. That's what would complete his joy. How does this happen? We look to Christ to find out. It's in Jesus' own giving example that clearly shows the way. Here's what we know. Pastor Paul didn't come up with this on his own. We actually have enough of the Bible recorded about Paul pre-Christ that we know that Paul on his own leads to a nightmare. Paul's idea of what would bring him joy was actually exactly opposite of what he's writing about in Philippians. He was headed in exactly the wrong direction. And because he's really passionate, type A, driven, and gifted, he was way out in front of everyone else leading the way, opposing the cross of Christ. So what changed? What changed in Paul from persecutor bully Paul to pastor Paul was Jesus transformed his life. Jesus got in him and all through him and all of a sudden the very thing he thought was great, he preaches against as terrible. The very kinds of people that he used to be and run with, he now denounces his false teachers, wooing them to say, turn around, repent, come to Jesus. Paul had it all, but he wanted more. Hungry for more. This is the Silicon Valley. We have a lot of people who have a lot, and they want more. But Paul suddenly gave all of it away, and he says, literally, all that stuff I was chasing, get, get, get. Get get, garbage. All of it. I don't want any of it anymore. Trophies, trash, fame, uh, pursuits, zeal—all that stuff. None of that matters to me. My lineage, all of my pedigree, all of my degrees, all of my achievements. What you think of me? Rubbish. That's British for garbage. He just didn't care about it anymore. It's all completely nonsense to him. Why? Because he saw the light. He used his privilege and power to benefit others. Where did Paul get that? Jesus Christ. Super clear. A reporter was interviewing a successful job counselor who had placed hundreds of people who were now happily in their vocations. This person was asked the secret of his success. The man replied, if you want to find out what a worker is really like, Don't give her responsibilities, give her privileges. Most people can handle responsibilities if you pay them enough, but it takes a real leader to handle privileges. A leader will use his privileges to help others and build the organization. A lesser person will use privileges to promote themselves. We see this in Jesus. We know that's noble. We know that would be the kind of person we would want How would we fare with that test? Responsibilities or being given privileges. Jesus used his privileges for the sake of others. Let me give you number three here. Number three is this. In a Jesus is one of many good options world, the cross shows us he's the only option. In every single age... The doctrine of Jesus Christ, who he was, ways to think about him, who he wasn't and isn't, need to be thought about well, long and hard, and defended vigorously. There are all kinds of heresies, and they stem out from Jesus Christ. This passage serves you so well in this endeavor. Let me tell you about two encounters. One was about a month ago, and it was by phone call. The other one happened yesterday. About a month ago, I'm at my office, and um, I think Jen may have answered the phone. I can't remember. Maybe Andres, but said there's a person on the phone wanting to talk to a pastor about the Bible. I get paid to be at neighborhood Bible church. I'm a pastor. I'm like I, I suppose I should take the phone call. So I did. So I did the phone call, and the person just started talking to me. I'll call him Frank. Frank is talking to me and kind of like a warm piece of bread. I'm like he's buttering me up for something I can just feel it like I could feel it coming through the phone but it was being sort of Framed in this way of like i'm new to the bible and I want help understanding it I want to make sure that I understand it correctly I said man, that's really really important. What do you got? So he started taking me to some passages and so um so I, I had my bible app open. I mean i'm a pastor come on So I opened my bible passage. And I'm like, okay, i'm there i'm with you And he said would you, would you read this and he just began to do some things that just began to sort of like Call to mind loads of other conversations i've had with people and so we engaged back and forth and pretty soon after a couple of Sort of like fencing like certain moves like if I go here, where's this person going to go? I'm, like, okay. So then I said to this guy I said, you know it sounds to me like the confusion may lie here. And I said, have you ever heard of the Jehovah's Witnesses? And he said, well, I am one. And I said, oh, then you've heard of them. <laughs> I said, well, listen. Um, I said, it sounds to me uh, like, like these key points of doctrine are really well entrenched and this, that, and the other thing. And, and, I, and, and, and the, the tone flipped in a moment. All of a sudden, it was like dark clouds, raining and thunder, and there's there was a lot of just um, directness and anger that started coming at me, fast and furious. And so I said, I said, I said, Frank, um, I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna end this phone call because I'll, I'll gladly give my time to someone who really is a hungry learner. That's again, that's what I, that's what I do. But I said I'm gonna end this phone call. But I said, um, I said, I just want to point out. I said, you you began this conversation under false pretense. So you actually lied to me. You were very dishonest with me about who you were and what you were hoping to do with this. I said, this hasn't been an honest or fair conversation. Uh, And at that point, I think he just sort of started talking over me and tried to end it in a firm but polite way, but I wasn't going to take any more of my time. I didn't think it was very helpful or productive. That was about a month ago. Yesterday, or two days ago, maybe on Friday, in my front room, and I saw um, two ladies walking up to my door on a bright, sunny Friday afternoon. And so I headed them off at the pass, because if you ring our doorbell, loads of kids and dogs will come bursting out, and it becomes this whole thing. We don't train our dogs very well. Our kids are pretty well trained. Sit, Eli. See? So I step outside, and these two ladies approach me, and, um, and they just said... Uh, They said, hi, good afternoon. Um, They said, I'm sure you have your own religion, and I'm sure that you have things that you are doing today, but we just wanted to ask you a couple of questions. I said, sure, fire away. And we began a little dialogue back and forth, and they had asked me this question. I wrote it down because I thought, wow, this was too powerful. The one said this. She said, "Um, the kingdoms of this world are fighting right now, and it's scary and disruptive. What do you think about that and how this will all end? Now, there's a scripture that says to all Christians this idea that we are to be prepared and ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us and that we're to do it marked by two traits. What are they? Gentleness And respect. I don't know about you, but very rarely in San Jose, grown up here my whole life, do I have people come and ask me a direct question, what is the hope that you have within you? That's what was being asked of me. And I said, well, I said, you know, I've been been meditating on this passage in Philippians. Are you familiar with Philippians? Yes, we are. Philippians chapter 2. I said, it actually answers this. It talks about King Jesus. And I just went on and sort of shared some things. And they said, oh, and they sort of lit up a little bit. And then they said, um, could we turn to Daniel chapter 2? And for previous conversations, I know why we're going to Daniel chapter 2. So I said, absolutely. She said, Daniel chapter 2. And she quoted the verse. And then she said, would you like to read it? Or would you like me to read it? And I said, first of all, and this is a really important tip. I said, I've got my, my Bible right here. She goes, oh, you've got it on your phone. I said, absolutely. So I pull it up so that I can read from, I tend to read out of the ESV, the English Standard Version, so that I can read. And she immediately said, oh, this is good, so that there aren't translation issues. What's important is these um, two neighbors We're reading from the New Century Version, which is a translation used by the Jehovah's Witnesses. So she read the passage, and then she asked about where that kingdom would be. Now again, I've studied world religions, and I've had most conversation with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. And so I again go back to Philippians 2. I said, look, listen, I I said, just to let you know, I said, let's start with names. I said, I'm Dave. And I said, I actually pastor the church right down the street, Neighborhood Bible Church. And I said, tomorrow I'm preaching on this same passage. That's why I was meditating on it. And it answers your question. Jesus is equal with God. He's king and he's ruling and he's reigning. And he humbles himself. He lets go of that. He veils his glory, comes at the incarnation, humbles himself to set up and establish a kingdom that will never end, he's the fulfillment of the prophecy of the whole rest of the Bible. And that he's actually returned to his rightful place. And as that passage so clearly points out, where's my hope? Where's it all gonna go? It says it in the passage. Every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow. Why? Because that's what you do before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So yes, I absolutely know what's going on. When I gave my name, they gave me their names, and it was Olivia and Patricia, and they were very kind and gracious, and I said, listen, I said, are you guys from the Kingdom Hall a couple doors down from our church? They said, we are. I said, well, we're neighbors then, and I said, listen, I said, I I think we have a difference of belief on Jesus Christ, and that's so key, and it's so foundational that that I think we're over here on on things. Um, and, I, and I just told them though, I said, I, I really appreciate the way we've had this interaction. And we sort of ended it on that note. And it was a really good exchange. And I just sort of walked away from that. And I don't always do this, by the way. Sometimes, maybe flip of the coin, I see two people, two young guys walking up who are elders or two older ladies, middle-aged older ladies who are Jehovah's Witnesses. That's sort of the MO that I see. And sometimes in my first Adam moment, I go, oh, what a headache. Let me shut him down. That's not very loving. <laughs> I'm probably not supposed to confess that, but that's just the truth. What is... The other day, honestly, I was, I was filled with two things. One is a protectiveness that just says, man, truth matters, and what, who Jesus is and what he is, that he's not uh, the archangel Michael, but that he's actually God is really, really, really important. But secondly, I was just filled with love for these two ladies. Understanding that, I also had a faulty idea of Jesus before I submitted to him as Lord and Savior. So two different exchanges in two different very kinds of ways. And these are the kinds of things as Christians we are called to do, which is to open our mouth in defense of the gospel. Keep bringing it back to Jesus. That's the point of contention that will go on. Let me conclude by giving you something really practical. On the back side of your notes are just three ways um, to sort of think through these things, and I hope they'll be helpful. You've been given power and privilege if you're in Christ. What are we to do with it? How are we to use it? We're to follow Jesus and give it away. What's really cool about the, uh, the, the Gospels is we see the growth of the disciples. I love that early on we get to see sort of like first Adam traits. And then later on, as the Bible goes on, the story progresses. We see second Adam transforming them from the inside out. So power and privilege. Think about early on. James and John asking to use their privilege to sit at Jesus' right hand. James and John getting a sense that this is the guy that can control all the elements. Jesus, let's call fire down on these Jehovah's Witnesses. They're wrong. Jesus says, slow your roll, buddy. So they had power and privilege. They were going to use it all wrong. Why? Because they were stuck in first Adam thinking. Peter argues, Peter and the others argue over who is greatest among them. Man, this is just so familiar to us. It's familiar in our home, at our dinner table around Christmas time. Who's getting what? Fairness, equality. But later on, we see Peter, who's wizened and softened by the love that Jesus has for imperfect people. Isn't that good news? Jesus loves imperfect people. Jesus is patient with people who use power and privilege the wrong way. And he writes this simple instruction found in 1 Peter 2.16. Just listen, it's short. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. If you're in Christ, you're free. You're free to use the power and privilege of being a royal people, a priesthood for the good of others. So how do we grow up in humility? I don't have a slide for this, so just jot these down. Jot down what's helpful. We grow in humility by reflecting on the cross. Every single Sunday, every single day, reflect on the cross. There's no pride on the cross. We have a saying in foster care. No one is strutting their way through foster care. You know why? Because it's hard. You're in deep need. So there's just humility there. When you reflect on the cross, there's no pride of your own. Think of the glory of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what produces all of this, giving away all of this humility. It's just adoring Jesus. Read and obey God's word. Isn't it true that the prideful don't need a word from the Lord? I got it. I'm good. (laughs) My kids say that sometimes. like, no, you really need a word from your dad. The prideful don't need a word from the Lord. The humble know that they need a word from the Lord more than they need lunch and dinner combined. As you read and then obey, think about how much humility is produced when you try to walk in obedience. Do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility, regard other people's needs. You're going to need... God in your life today to accomplish that. Here's another one, praying. Pride produces prayerless Christians. Again from 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's linking humility and prayer. God, I have a need. I can't handle it. I give it to you in humility. You grow in humility by serving others. You grow in humility by associating with the lowly. Now, the lowly is a really interesting idea, but let me toss out a couple of categories and think about ways (coughs) you could be involved. Les is involved here uh, every other Thursday night um, with some who are uh, physically disabled in some way. And to come and just invest time and spend time with, with them is an option. Certainly foster care and families going through that. Certainly the homeless. But how about this? How about the whole category of new? Just think about this. Someone who's new at school is lowly. They need a friend. Someone who's new to the neighborhood just, just needs, needs some, some, some love and some care. Someone who's new to the country has a special kind of vulnerability that you don't possess if you, if you live here. How about someone who is new to marriage, new to being a Christian, newly widowed, new at a job, new at being jobless? Man, you just take the new category, you overlay it somewhere, there's loads of ministry to be done. Pursue these and you'll keep close to the gospel. How about growing in giving? Here's some thoughts on growing in giving. So, this isn't against selfies. I think I took a selfie sometime in this last week. But in this like insane crazy world that's going on and just the the world of selfies, here's what has happened. There are masses who are sensitive in all the wrong ways. There's a kind of sensitivity that I think we should cultivate and develop and a kind of sensitivity that we should callous up for. When you play guitar, when I haven't played guitar in a while, my fingers are really sensitive on my left hand as I'm pushing down on the strings. After playing for a while, I develop little calluses. I do that because it takes my fingers from being painful and useless to being calloused and useful. Useful to other people requires a certain thick skin. It requires a certain callousness to your own name and your own honor and your own sense of being right, and to make sure everyone understood exactly what you meant. And how dare you use that word? And how dare you look at me this way? And how dare you question my sensitivities, even? There it is. This is just rampant in us. And if we are able to, in Christ, have our insecurity replaced with security, I don't need to defend myself anymore. My name isn't most important. Jesus is. What does perfect love do? Perfect love casts out what? Fear. I'm not afraid anymore. I can give and give and give like I'm made of this stuff, because I know the King of Kings. So there's a certain just sensitivity to other people's needs that is not happening because of all the energy guarding myself and keeping my sensitive fingers from feeling pain. God help us. God does help us sort of transform and flip that around. I saw this sign yesterday. This sums it up. Uh, I was having a little coffee date with Becky, and um, at Phil's, they have sort of a message board, and there was was one there that said, um, it said, never apologize for me time. (laughs) That's just a great message for the age. Sorry, kids. It's more me time, and I don't apologize. I'm never going to apologize for me. I mean, this is just, that is the spirit of the age. All right. Um, Man, by the way, how do you develop calluses? You take God at his word. God, it's Monday morning tomorrow. Can you help me? Can you help me do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit? Can you fill me with humility and just put other people's needs in front of my own? Part two of worship every single Sunday is the practicum. It's where we get to put this into practice. Um, This isn't a shaming thing to all those who aren't wearing a name tag. But you're wearing a name tag today is a gift to other people. It's considering other people as more important than yourself. You don't need a reminder of what your name is. You don't need to accent your outfit with that cool blue and the smell of Sharpie in the morning. It's not about you. Like putting on a name tag is considering other people more important than yourself. How about this? We're about to dismiss. How about, how about looking to meet a need? How about walking out there and thinking about other people's week behind and the worries that they had, the struggles they had, the joys they experienced as, as more important than your week? And we really give ourselves to listening and being present. We don't wait so we can jump in and say our thing, or we don't start going, you're excited about that, how lame. You don't say that, you go, "Bless you, brother," or some Christian weird thing. <laughs> but, but we have we have the power, we have the opportunity right now to walk out of these doors and say, "God, help me be sensitive to the needs of other people. That their joys would be my joys, that their hurts would be my hurts, that their prayer requests would be more important than my prayer requests." Doesn't mean we don't share our prayer requests. But we outdo one another in showing honor. Band, why don't you come on up? Finally, I just put the third one as growing in theology. This is the whole idea that Jesus' name needs to be defended in every age. Theology is right thinking about life. So how do we think rightly about Jesus Christ? Well, it's daily asking God, God, teach me on this topic. It's also opening your mouth to defend him. If someone takes the name of the Lord in vain, using Jesus as a cuss word, I hope that still bothers you. I hope you find ways to to engage someone with that. There's all kinds of winsome ways you can sort of wade into that conversation. There's also a time for boldness that just says, that's really offensive to me. That means something to me. God will teach you on this. I have a book in my office called The Five-Minute Apologist. I read another one called Five-Minute Theologian. And in tiny bite-sized bits, I just read one about every day. And it's sort of reminding me on little theological ideas, how to think rightly about this. The five-minute apologist is just sort of reminding me and teaching me about how to engage people about being a witness for Jesus Christ. Those are some simple tools that have helped me. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for just your love for us, for providing for us. God, I thank you for this passage. This passage to me is like just an incredible view that we would come and set up our chair regularly at. There'd be a worn spot in the trail where we just look on you. We remind ourselves, we're filled with adoration. I pray, God, we would have like date night with you that we'd stop and just carve out time and say, I I need to be re-reminded of all these things I have in you the encouragement, the participation, the affection, the, the comfort. And then God, just to adore who you are, who you are to me and what you've made us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.